0: Today, we're in Lesson 8 in our survey of church history, so if you have your workbook, you can follow along in Lesson 8. If not, you can just follow along with the PowerPoint. Uh, We're going to be looking at the Middle Ages today, and uh, I like to joke that this particular lesson is uh, in keeping with 2 Peter 3.8. That's where Peter says that a thousand years is like a day, because we're going to be covering essentially a thousand years Of history in just one lesson. And so we're going to be going very quickly today. That's not what that verse means, in case you're wondering about my hermeneutics. Uh, I just think it's an interesting connection point. Uh, When we started this series, we were talking about some of the reasons why the study of church history is so important and why it's compelling. And I gave three basic reasons, and it was the acronym ABC. I believe church history is important because it equips us in terms of our apologetics. It helps us understand how the church has defended the truth against error. We saw that last week when we were looking at some of those major councils where they were defending the truth about the person and work of Jesus Christ. And even some of the questions that we're going to be asking today from an apologetic standpoint, questions like, why are we not Roman Catholic? Why are we not Muslim? Why are we not Eastern Orthodox? Those are questions that will be touched on in today's lesson. And then the B was for biography. I find history compelling because we see the lives of men and women who were committed fully to walking in faith, committed fully to the Lord Jesus Christ, and their example of faithfulness, often even to the point of sacrificing their own lives, their examples are compelling to us. And if you've ever read a good biography that stirred you up in your love for Christ, you've experienced that. And then the the C was for curiosity or connections. Either one works. And, And that's really what today's lecture is all about. It's about answering some questions that you may have about how things developed, why things are the way they are. And so if you're wondering, how does this... Lesson fit into the broad scope of what we're trying to do in presenting the material. It really fits under that third category. I want to answer some key questions for you that are going to help us as we move into next week, looking at the forerunners to the Reformation. Uh, in particular, today, we're going to be answering some big questions, questions like, How did the papacy develop? When did Islam come on the scene? And then how did the Crus- the Crusades come about as a response to that movement? And then uh, questions about how did the Roman Empire that you see when you look at the maps in the back of your Bible, when you look at Paul's missionary journeys, how did the Roman Empire of the first, second, even the fifth century How did it eventually come to be the nations of Europe that we see today when we look at a map or when we read the news? So those are some of the big, broad-stroke questions that we're going to be asking and answering in today's lesson. And again, this is going to set us up really well for next week when we talk about the forerunners to the Reformation and we get back into more of that biographical, compelling motivation as we look at the lives of God's people in the past. All right, so this lesson is called Scholars, Schisms, and I should have gone with skirmishes. That would have completed the alliteration a little bit better. Uh, But when we talk about scholars, we're going to talk about the rise of the university system in Europe. When we talk about schisms, we're going to talk about the split between Roman Catholicism in the West and Eastern Orthodoxy in the East. And when we talk about soldiers, we're talking primarily about the Crusades. And so that's how those three titles Fit together with our lesson today. Uh, I think it's always important because I know that you're not thinking about church history every moment of every day to review where we've been just to make sure that you understand kind of where we sit. And uh, so I'll put these up on the screen quickly. Uh, this represents the patristic period. Patristic, just a fancy word that means the period of the church fathers. And uh, different historians. Uh, identify the patristic period using different parameters. Uh, Some would say it goes all the way through the 8th century so that it includes all of those councils that we talked about last week. Uh, But everyone agrees that the Middle Ages start with the fall of Rome in the 5th century. So I like to put the patristic period in those first five centuries. And these are all names. These are all events that we've already discussed in this uh, series that we've been doing. And what we've found, uh, speaking about true evangelicalism, going back to some of the announcements this morning, is we've found that those evangelical principles of a high view of who God is and a high view of Scripture such that we would submit to the Bible God's Word as our final authority and, and a view of salvation that understands that we're saved by grace and not through works, that those core evangelical principles are still intact in the patristic period, which is a great encouragement for us as evangelical Christians because those are the same core convictions that motivate us and that give us the courage to be able to take a stand in our own generation for the truth. Now, if you look at that final box there, the 5th century, there are a couple of names there that I... well, one name and one event that I put in bold, because we have not talked about those so much, and I just want to introduce you to them. Uh, Leo is uh, mid-5th century, that's the 400s. He was a bishop. Again, bishop is kind of a fancy word for the senior pastor. I think that's the closest parallel that we have to today. But uh, he was the bishop of Rome in the mid-400s. And Leo is an important, he represents an important development in the history of the papacy. Uh, I get asked that question a lot. It comes in the form of, you know, how did the papacy develop? Or sometimes people ask it this way: when did the Roman Catholic Church become the Roman Catholic Church? And usually by that what they mean is when did the Pope become the Pope, if if that makes sense. Uh, so the development of that is uh, with Leo and There's a lot of nuance in church history. I understand that. I remember one time my son, this was at least 10 years ago, when he was about four years old, was watching a graduation service. I may have shared this story already. He was watching a graduation service here at the Master's Seminary, and he was seeing all of the students going down in their long, flowing, dark robes with their pointed hats. And he leaned over to my wife and asked, Mom, are those... Are those good guys or bad guys? Uh, Which was a great question for him in his four-year-old mind. You know, he's sort of putting everything in superhero categories. You're either all good or all bad. Uh, Church history tends to be, just like real life, more nuanced than that. And so even when we look back on some of these figures in the history of the church, they're not always just in the good guy or bad guy category. I actually think Leo was more in the good guy category than the bad guy category, but due to circumstances in his own life, he elevated the role of the Bishop of Rome and set it on a trajectory that would eventually lead to the development of what today we know as the papacy. And actually, the papacy reached the height of its power in the 13th century Uh, during the tenure of a pope named Innocent III, uh, who was not innocent, but he was the third pope to take that name, and uh, he represented the height of papal power. At that time in the 13th century, popes were essentially the absolute monarchs of Europe, and even the kings and emperors of Europe deferred to the popes. Leo did this in practice because he operated as essentially the civil ruler of Rome and the surrounding areas. There was an emperor of the Western Roman Empire at that time, uh, but uh, Leo himself uh, set up the Church of Rome so that it would be recognized as the most important church in the Western half of the Roman Empire. In fact. There's a really fascinating story in the mid-400s. Attila the Hun actually led his forces all the way to the outskirts of Rome and was threatening to attack the city of Rome. And uh, like that guy, Attila the Hun, is outside the gates ready to sack the city of Rome. And who do you think Rome sent out as their emissary to seek terms with Attila the Hun? This is crazy to me. They sent their pastor... So it was Leo, the pastor of the Church of Rome, who actually went out and met with Attila the Hun. I mean, it would be as if some dictator of some foreign army is up in Santa Clarita ready to attack San Fernando Valley, and John MacArthur goes to seek terms. And uh, Leo was successful. Uh, He got Attila to turn around and go home, which is incredible but it just shows the kind of personal gravitas that Leo had and his ability to command respect, not only for him personally, but for the office of the papacy. Leo was one of the first to claim, and this is what gets really important, he was one of the first to claim that Matthew 16, 18, that's where Jesus said, uh, Matthew 16, 16, Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. It's a great confession about who Christ is. Verse 17, Jesus says, Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then verse 18, I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Leo interpreted that verse to mean that Peter was the rock. And because Peter had died in Rome and had been one of the leaders in the church in Rome before he died, Leo then assumed that Peter's authority as the rock passed down to all of the bishops of Rome, going all the way down to Leo. This is called Petrine succession, papal succession, sometimes called apostolic succession. But it's the idea that the bishop of Rome is the successor of Peter, and therefore the bishop of Rome is the church, is the rock, excuse me, on which the church is built. Um, That viewpoint is impossible (laughs) grammatically, theologically, and it doesn't work historically. Uh, Let me give you just a couple quick thoughts on that. The grammar of that verse, I say to you that you are Peter, is petros in Greek, which is masculine. And then Jesus says, but upon this rock, petra, which is feminine, I will build my church. Jesus can't be talking about Peter as the rock because Peter's not a girl. And Jesus used a feminine form of the word rock when he said, upon this rock, I will build my church. So grammatically, it doesn't work. I believe grammatically that the rock on which the church is built is the content of Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. So it doesn't work grammatically. Secondly, it doesn't work theologically. If you look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 and Ephesians 2, Jesus is the rock on which the church is built. And if you look at what Peter himself says in 1 Peter chapter 1, he says Jesus is the cornerstone, the rock on which the church is built. So neither Paul nor Peter agreed with the Roman Catholic interpretation of that verse. And then historically, we know that Peter was in a number of different churches, not just Rome, so for Rome to claim him is illegitimate, and the history of the papacy bears out the fact that this supposed succession has not, has not preserved the purity of that office. So that's a real quick snapshot, but it's something that's important for you to understand, that in the fifth century, Rome And the bishops of Rome begin to think of themselves as the vicar of Peter, as the representative of Peter. Actually, when we get to the 11th century, a guy named Gregory VII will start to refer to himself as the vicar of Christ. So they keep giving themselves promotions, and that's kind of how you see the papacy itself begin to develop. Also, shortly after Leo's lifetime, we have what is known as the fall of Rome, Uh, Most historians date this to 476, which is the last point at which you had a Roman emperor reigning on the throne of the western half of the Roman Empire. And I want to show you this, a couple of maps here. Uh, This map here shows you the language distinction between the western half of the Roman Empire, represented in red, which spoke Latin, and the eastern half of the Roman Empire represented in blue, which spoke Greek. And you'll find that the western and eastern halves of the Roman Empire, they end up splitting not only over theological and cultural and eventually military differences, but over linguistic differences as well. And so the western half speaks Latin, that becomes the Roman Catholic half, and the eastern half speaks Greek, which becomes the Greek Orthodox or the Eastern Orthodox half of the Roman Empire. This map here shows you the Germanic barbarian tribal groups that invaded the western half of the Roman Empire, really starting at the end of the 4th century around the year 395, and for the next 80 years, dismantling the western half of the Roman Empire until it finally and fully fell in the year 476. And uh, I know we were all startled this last week from pictures with um, especially the the guy that was wearing the Viking helmet. It looked like barbarians had stormed the capital. I would say barbarians did storm the capital. Um, That was happening in the 5th century in Rome with groups like the Goths and the Vandals and the Angles and the Saxons and the Huns and these other tribal groups. And actually, you'll you'll recognize a lot of those names because those names become the basis for some of the names of the modern nations of Europe, Uh, places like England from the name Angle, places like Hungary from the name Hun, places like France from the name Franks. So these barbarian tribal groups come and they overrun the western half of the Roman Empire, and the western half of the Roman Empire then falls. Culturally, things take a few steps backwards, but the one sort of glue that holds all of these various groups together is that they embrace the Christianity of the Roman Empire, and they look to the Bishop of Rome as their de facto spiritual leader, which is why a thousand years later, when we get to Martin Luther, we have all of these nations of Europe, and they all see the Pope as their spiritual father. I know we're going quickly, but hopefully the maps help a little bit. Uh, One just quick point on this, because I think this is really interesting, is uh, this was all happening during the lifetime of Augustine. And we talked about Augustine a couple of uh, lessons ago. It was back in November. But uh, While this is all happening in the early 5th century, Christians in the Roman Empire are wondering how could this happen, right? The empire had become a Christian empire. How is it that God could allow these pagan barbarian tribal groups to overrun a Christian empire? Uh, Sort of the theology that the Christian football team is supposed to win because they're a Christian football team and they're losing and they're going, how is this happening? How is this possible? And Augustine wrote a really helpful book called the City of God, in answer to that question in which he reminded Christians that this world is not their home. And so they need to take their eyes off of what's happening politically in their own lifetime and put their eyes on the Lord of heaven, remembering that they are citizens of heaven and not citizens of this earth. I think that's a helpful reminder for us even in light of current events in our own day. Okay, I want to talk now a little bit about some events in the medieval period. That's the period of the Middle Ages, and we're going to go through this quickly. But with the western half of the Roman Empire having fallen, all that we have left is the Eastern Roman Empire in terms of the remnants of the Old Roman Empire. The Eastern Roman Empire becomes known as the Byzantine Empire. And actually, if you're wondering what are the dividing markers for the Middle Ages when the western half of the Roman Empire falls in 476, the Middle Ages begin. And when the eastern half of the Roman Empire finally falls a thousand years later in 1453, the Middle Ages end. So the Middle Ages bookend, are bookended by the fall of the western half of the Roman Empire and then the fall of the eastern half of the Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. Justinian was the guy who called the Second Council of Constantinople. We talked about that last week. And he tried to reconquer some of the land in the West that had been lost, but uh, was only able to have moderate success. And that success was short-lived because in the next century, we have the rise of Islam. Uh, Mohammed, of course, a name that you would recognize, was born around the year five seventy. And according to a Muslim tradition, when he was about 40 years old, around the year 610, he began receiving what he claimed were revelations from the angel Gabriel. And those revelations were written down in a book called the Quran. And of course, then Islam was born. Uh, One of the things that I think is important to understand is that Muhammad had some level of access or at least some level of awareness of Christianity. We think he was influenced by a particular heretical sect of Christianity called the Ebionite movement. The Ebionite movement denied the deity of Christ, and so it's not surprising that when Muhammad tried to incorporate certain Christian themes into Islam. One of those themes was a denial of the deity of Christ. Uh, But Muhammad, for his part, at least initially in his um, career as a prophet, a false prophet, uh, he claimed that uh, his revelation that he was giving was right in line with the revelation that God had given in the Old Testament through the prophets, and in the New Testament through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this, the Quran, was just supposed to be another revelation in keeping with those prior books, those prior revelations. Uh, This is what false teachers always do, is they try to gain credibility by appealing to that which is true. You see it in Mormonism, you see it in other false religions, where they say, yeah, the Bible's true, but then also this. And of course, by its own standard... The Quran fails because the Quran claims to be consistent with prior revelation, but it actually is entirely contradictory to prior revelation. That's a whole other discussion, but the reason it becomes important in church history is because Islam will now become the greatest military and political threat, the biggest geopolitical competitor to Christian kingdoms. And so we have now, beginning in the 7th century with Islam, we have um, really the stage being set for the Crusades and, honestly, the stage being set for uh, geopolitical conflict that still exists in our world today. Uh, it's in the year 637, some would say 638, that Muslim armies conquered Jerusalem And actually, Muhammad dies in the year 632. Over the next 100 years, Islam sweeps throughout the Middle East, North Africa, up into Spain, and then all the way to the borders of India in the east. And we have what we call the Muslim Crescent. It's sometimes called in terms of the the land that Islam initially conquered. I have a map that I'll show you here in just a moment. In the 8th century, uh, back in Rome... I feel like I need to say, meanwhile, back at the ranch. Meanwhile, back in Rome, there is a forgery called the Donation of Constantine that was discovered, obviously in air quotes, in the late 8th century. And that false document, that forgery, claimed to be a deed from Emperor Constantine. Remember, Constantine was the emperor who converted to Christianity and then converted the entire Roman Empire to Christianity. And he moved his capital city in the year 324 from Rome to Constantinople. Well, this document claimed that when he did that, that he gave the city of Rome to the bishop of Rome. So now you have Leo's theological argument, we're the rock on which the church is built, combined with a piece of paper that says, we actually are the rightful heirs of the city of Rome. And starting now in the 8th century to be the pope, is to be the king of Rome and to view yourself as the spiritual leader of the entire Christian world. Well, once that happens, the papacy becomes like something out of a mafia movie where rival factions within the city of Rome keep trying to gain that position of political power. And honestly, the history of the papacy in the 9th and 10th centuries, which I'll just go ahead and put those up here, The history of the papacy in the ninth and 10th centuries reads like something out of the book of 1st or 2nd Kings, where the guy who becomes the pope is the pope because he murdered the guy who used to be the pope, and he's the pope only for a short period of time because he gets killed by the next guy who becomes the pope. And so with the papacy entirely politicized, it's no longer about being a pastor-servant, it's about being an absolute monarch of the city of Rome and the surrounding areas. In fact, there's a book by John Julius Norwich called Absolute Monarchs, which traces the history of the corruption of the papacy, and another book by a a guy named Eric Chamberlain, again, non-evangelical. He wrote a book, and you can tell his thesis from the title of the book. It's called The Bad Popes. The Bad Popes. And it's all about this period of time in the history of the papacy from the 8th, 9th, and 10th century century and I will warn you just ahead of time that some of the things that the popes were doing are so base and so corrupt that it's just the level of corruption was despicable. So the papacy has gone from being the pastor of the church in Rome to being the head of essentially a mafia unit in Rome where you try to protect absolute power at all costs. Uh, I have up there Charlemagne and the Holy Roman Empire. And again, we're going so quickly through these things, but these are helpful and important connection points. On the year, or in the year 800, actually on Christmas Day 800, there was a pope named Leo III. Leo III, um, he had been forced out of Rome by some of the members of the rival group, a group that had been led by a former pope named Adrian I, and uh, the followers of Adrian confronted Leo in the streets and threatened to cut out his tongue, and he fled, and he made his way up to the kingdom of the Franks, and he appealed to Charlemagne, which is a Latin way of saying Charles the Great, who was the king of the Franks. And Charles came down with his army and put Leo back in power in Rome. And Charlemagne believed that the donation of Constantine was legitimate, and he wanted to see the popes be the ruling power in Rome, and he had the army to make that happen. And uh, this introduced an interesting conflict in Western church history between who's more important or who's more powerful. Are the popes more powerful or are the kings more powerful? And the balance of power was shifting towards kings because Charlemagne had just put Leo back in power. And so to sort of reverse the tide on Christmas Day 800, Leo surprised Charlemagne by crowning him King of the Romans, which was ironic because he wasn't Roman. He was the King of the Franks, a barbarian tribal group, Um, but King of the Romans. And uh, this starts a, a political entity in Europe That will last for a thousand years called the Holy Roman Empire, which encompasses much of modern-day Germany and uh, sort of the central part of Europe. It would become the most powerful kingdom in Europe really for the next thousand years. Historians say the name is ironic because the Holy Roman Empire wasn't Roman. It wasn't really an empire. Uh, It became an empire, and it certainly wasn't holy it was very much political. Uh, But Charlemagne becomes an important leader in the history of the Western Church. Uh, Actually, the development of the Holy Roman Empire had the net effect of making the folks in the Eastern Roman Empire, which actually was part of the original Roman Empire, really upset because they're like, you're not the Roman Empire, we're the Roman Empire, which only distanced, put further distance between the two groups. And we've already talked a bit about papal corruption. So let me show you just a couple of maps here that I think will be helpful. Uh, This map is a little bit hard to see, but it shows you the development of the advancement of Islam in the first hundred years after Muhammad's lifetime. So from 632 when Muhammad dies until 732. uh, In 732 there's a battle called the Battle of Tours, which took place in modern-day France. And that's where, uh, actually, Charlemagne's grandfather, a guy named Charles Martel, defeated Muslim armies and started to push them back into Spain in an effort to push them back into North Africa. Uh, But this conflict between Christian kingdoms and Muslim kingdoms will, of course, escalate into the Crusades, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. And then one more map that I want to show you is the East-West Schism, which we have not talked about quite yet because it took place in the year 1054. But it was in the year 1054 that the western half of Roman Christendom broke off officially from the eastern half of Roman Christendom. And so you can, from 1054 on, you can begin to talk about the Roman Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so if you're wondering historically, when did those two things become two separate things? The answer is in the 11th century, in the year 1054. All right, in keeping with 2 Peter 3.8, we're going to keep marching through our thousand years. In the 10th century, um, so actually that should be... Yeah, I, I realize now that there's a typo in my PowerPoint... So we go 10th, 11th, 13th, 14th. So the first two are wrong. It's the 11th century and the 12th century. Uh, Century numbers are always named for the last year in the century. So the 11th century ends in the year 1100. The 12th century ends in the year 1200, uh, just like the 20th century ended in the year 2000. So in any case, um, the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries are known as the High Middle Ages and then the 14th and 15th centuries as the late Middle Ages. We're not going to talk about the late Middle Ages today, but I do want to talk about some of these events in the high Middle Ages in the 11th, 12th, and 13th century. So in the 11th century, we have the schism between the East and the West. Remember, going all the way back to Leo. Leo was the one who had kind of introduced this idea that if Peter is the rock, then the popes are the rock because the popes are the vicars of Peter. And then we have the donation of Constantine, giving Rome and all of the surrounding areas to the popes so that the papacy becomes a political office. Then we have the conflict between popes and kings as to who's more powerful And for quite a number of centuries, popes were more powerful than kings. Um, It was a pope named Leo IX in the middle of the 11th century, so again, the 1000s, who wanted to make sure that all of the cities of importance in the Eastern Roman Empire that they knew that the Bishop of Rome was the most important bishop. He was the leader. He was el Jefe over all of the other bishops, right? So that's his intent. So he sends a delegation led by a cardinal named Cardinal Humbert. He sends a delegation to the bishop of the Patriarch, the bishop of Constantinople, which is, or Byzantium, which is the capital city of the Eastern Roman Empire. And this guy's name was Michael Cerularius. And Cardinal Humbert demands that Michael Cerularius, the Patriarch of Constantinople, recognize Leo IX as the most important bishop of all of the bishops. Well, Michael Cerularius is like, You guys are crazy. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. At which point, Cardinal Humbert excommunicates Michael Cerularius. And then in response, the patriarch excommunicates the delegation. In essence, in 1054, the Western church excommunicated the Eastern church, and the Eastern church excommunicated the Western church. And that's called the Great Schism or the East-West Schism, and that's why you have Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism. There were a number of other factors that played into that, but the real issue at the heart of it was the issue of papal authority. The popes demanded to be the supreme authority, and the Eastern Church said no. I would argue when we get to the Reformation, it again is a matter ultimately of papal authority. The popes are demanding to be recognized as the head of the church, and the Reformers said absolutely not. Christ alone is the head of the church. But we'll talk about that because that doesn't happen for another 500 years. Uh, Then I have uh, under the, again, 11th century, uh, schools. We have in Western Europe at this time the development of the university system. In the early Middle Ages, education and scholarship was preserved in monasteries. And we had talked about the monastic movement in an earlier lesson. But as we get into the 11th century, again, the 1000s, we begin to have schools develop that eventually become the universities of Europe. One of those universities started in the year 1095. Actually, there's, excuse me, there's evidence that the education actually goes earlier than that, all the way back to the time of Charlemagne, but it sort of formally started in the year 1095. That is Oxford University, which is pretty amazing to consider that if the Lord tarries that in the year 2095, the folks at Oxford will celebrate the 1,000th anniversary of their school. But this shift towards the university system and the education model is significant. It represents something called the rise of scholasticism, from which we get the word school and the word scholar, which was a very systematic approach to studying things, where you set a thesis and then an antithesis and then you lined up the authorities and you came to it a, con- a conclusion. So a systematic approach to education and, of course, out of this will come things like the Renaissance and ultimately the Enlightenment. And then the Crusades. Uh, in the year uh, 1095, so right around that same time that Oxford was getting started, uh, Muslim armies were continuing to threaten the Byzantine Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, Again, the Byzantines kept having that same conversation that the folks in the Western Roman Empire had had much, much earlier. Wait a second, if we're a Christian empire, why is God letting us be defeated by those who are non-Christians? And that was a constant topic of conversation in the East. They were being threatened by Muslim armies. In particular, there was a group known as the Seljuk Turks who threatened the Eastern Roman Empire and who also harassed Christian pilgrims from the West when they tried to travel down to the Holy Land. And so in the year 1095, the emperor of the East, a guy named Alexius I, he Cried out to the West for help to defend the East against these advancing armies, Muslim armies, um, interestingly, and this gives you an insight into who the most powerful person in Europe was at the time. The Emperor of the East appealed to the Pope in the West, a guy named Urban the Second, and Urban the Second began to preach crusade and uh, the crusades were were born. Urban also promised, this he kind of borrowed from Muslim theology, he promised that if you died in crusade, you got to skip purgatory and go straight to heaven. Of course, purgatory was a doctrine that had been developing during this time as well, the idea that you have to go through a series of punishments after death before you can be let into heaven. You want to skip purgatory, go on crusade. Uh, These are not the Billy Graham Crusades, these are the real Crusades. So in 1095, armies from Western Europe travel down through Constantinople, again modern-day Istanbul, and then they go south, and in 1099, the Crusaders conquer Jerusalem, and they're able to hold Jerusalem for 80 years. So for a period of 80 years, Jerusalem is under Crusader control. Uh, The Crusades last for about 200 years in terms of a period of time, and they sort of follow the general timeline of the Vietnam War. The Vietnam War started with military success, then it resulted in a series of major military defeats, and then there was a long period of time where everyone was kind of wondering why we're still there, and then the whole thing ended in sort of an awkward and uncomfortable, like, let's not talk about that ever. That's the Crusades. Crusades. So the Crusades start with the First Crusade, which militarily is successful. And there's a number of Crusader kingdoms that are established. In fact, let me show you that map. These are the Crusader kingdoms that are established as a result of the First Crusade. Uh, Crusader kingdoms in Jerusalem, in Antioch, in Edessa, and in various places throughout the Middle East. Also, there are some uh, monks There are orders, monastic orders now, that actually take up swords and go into battle. So for the first time in the history of Christendom, we have warrior monks. And this would include groups like the Knights of St. John, who become known as the Hospitallers, the Teutonic Knights, who actually fight crusades up around the Baltic Sea, which are the crusades we never really talk about. And then, the most famous of all, the Knights of the Temple, the Knights Templar, and the Knights Templar actually set up an ingenious system where pilgrims from Western Europe can deposit their money with the knights in Europe and take a certificate of deposit with them to on their travel, their pilgrimage to the Holy Land. And when they get there, they can then withdraw on their account, and that way their money is protected during the journey. This begins to to start things like Europe's banking system. It's also the reason we believe that the Knights Templar became so wealthy and why all of the conspiracy theories about Holy Grails and other hidden treasures started to be associated with that group. Um, so, the First Crusade, militarily successful. That's followed by a Second Crusade, which is a disaster. A Third Crusade, which ends in a stalemate. The Third Crusade involves people like Richard the Lionhearted from Robin Hood fame. And then it all sort of climaxes very badly in the Fourth Crusade in 1204 when the, Christians, the Christian soldiers from Western Europe who are supposed to be fighting Muslim armies in the Holy Land end up actually sacking and destroying, looting the city of Constantinople in a sort of a, a horrible and tragic turn of events. The Crusades started because Constantinople asked these Western soldiers for help. The Crusades in the Fourth Crusade reached the low point when the Western soldiers who are supposed to be protecting Constantinople end up attacking and destroying the city of Constantinople. And there's a long story behind it, which we don't have time for this morning. But the reason the Fourth Crusade is important in the year 1204 is because it's 150 years after that East-West schism, and it's sort of the nail in the coffin between the Eastern and Western halves of Roman Christendom. The Eastern Orthodox Church, the Western Roman Catholic Church, they become very much bitter enemies after the Fourth Crusade. Uh, Why did Christians fight in the Crusades? Uh, the answer to that is because they really did believe that they well, I think some of them were just adventure seekers, but some of them really did believe that they were uh, trying to take up the cause of Christ, but they were obviously doing it in a way that was completely unbiblical. and so you see the unbiblical you see uh, what zeal without knowledge can accomplish in a very tragic way in the with the Crusades. And certainly as Christians today, sometimes people bring up the Crusades even as a way to attack Christianity. I think the best and simplest answer to that attack is to say, if you read the New Testament in terms of what it calls Christians to do and how they are to behave, even in response to their enemies, the Crusades are completely inconsistent with the message and the model of Jesus Christ. And so we don't have to try and defend that which is indefensible. I think we say, yeah, that was wrong. It was out of step with what the church or with what Christian governments should be doing and as clearly inconsistent with what Jesus calls his followers to do and to be. Now, I'll I'll go back to this just for a second so you can see how those crusades line up. Again, First Crusade, Successful second and third crusade defeat, fourth crusade disaster, and uh, generally the Crusades are numbered as seven total Crusades. The final three, fifth, sixth, and seventh crusade fit into that long period of time where everybody was kind of like, "Why are we still doing this? This is really um, really uh, not working out well and and of course, the Crusades have left a long lasting impression on the people who live in the Middle East and you know when you wonder why do people who live in the Middle East see American soldiers as crusaders? well, America, the United States of America, is the product of Western Europe, and whenever Western Europe sent soldiers into the Middle East, they were viewed as crusaders and so for American soldiers, even though it's been a thousand years almost since the Crusades, when they show up in the middle east those who view this history from the other side, see this as simply an extension of these medieval wars that took place in the 11th, 12th, and 13th centuries. Um, Just one really random fact, uh, since I'm thinking about it. Uh, The the final few crusades featured a king from France whose name was uh, Louis, Louis. And uh, King Louis... Uh, ended up dying in the crusade, so he was a failed crusader. But uh, for all of his efforts, he was canonized by the Roman Catholic Church as a saint, and eventually they founded a city in Missouri that they named after him, St. Louis, Missouri. So I like to tell fans of the Cardinals and other St. Louis teams that their teams are named after a failed crusader, which sort of fits their... uh... Okay, sorry. um, Moving on. I'm just going to end with a, a few slides here. We have about five minutes left. <clears throat> one big question is, well, where was the gospel in the period of the Middle Ages? Were there true believers? And I think the answer to that is yes. Our theology tells us the answer to that is yes, because in the same way that Elijah said to God in 1 Kings 19, I'm the only one left, uh, and God said, no, I have a remnant. God always has a remnant. Uh, Going back to Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. That promise is fulfilled throughout church history. And so theologically, we know that God always has his remnant. And I just want to quickly show you two individuals in this period of time who give us glimpses of the gospel of grace, even in a period of geopolitical tumult, crusades, corruption, Uh, all sorts of major changes taking place, glimpses of the gospel of grace from Anselm of Canterbury and Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, Anselm was the bishop of Canterbury from 1093 to 1109, so he's 11th slash 12th century in terms of his time. And I I just want to highlight a couple things. We could spend a lot of time talking about Anselm. Uh, He helps develop what's called the satisfaction theory of the atonement, uh, which is a more biblical understanding of the atonement than what was popular in the Middle Ages, something called the ransom theory. The satisfaction theory of the atonement is that God is the one who must be satisfied in the death of Christ. And Anselm put that in terms of God's glory had been uh, stolen by sinners And so we owed him a debt of glory, and only God could fulfill that debt, and only man could pay the debt. And so God became man, so that as man, he might pay the debt that only God could pay. And of course, the Reformers would pick up on that, speaking of the justice of God as that which is satisfied. But you'll notice that uh, even in talking about the gospel, Anselm taught that sinners are saved not on the basis of their deeds, but because of God's mercy given to them through Christ. And so I just have a quote here that I want to read to you from Anselm. What indeed can be conceived of more merciful than the God, the Father should say to a sinner condemned to eternal torments and lacking any means of redeeming himself. In other words, we have nothing. God says, take my only begotten son and give him on your behalf, offer him on your behalf. And the son himself should say, take me and redeem yourself. Which is a beautiful way of saying the recognition that as sinners, we bring nothing, and God, through his Son, gives us everything necessary for our redemption. I want to show you one more quote from Anselm. Anselm explains the immeasurable imperfections of the believer are covered by the infinite perfections of Christ. This is uh, the doctrine of Christ's substitutionary atonement. Uh, There's this. Work that's credited to Anselm, called exhortations to a young man, or exhortations to a yeah exhortations to a young man greatly perplexed on the or at the thought of his death. Uh, so, it's written actually probably by Anselm or maybe somebody uh, associated with Anselm, but it's written as a way to instruct pastors how to counsel people who are about to die. And here's what Anselm says, and I wish we could read more of it than just what I have here, but he says to the dying man, when you stand before God, if he says that you are a sinner, say, Lord, I interpose the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between my sins and you. And if he says that you have deserved condemnation, say, Lord, I set the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between my evil deservings and you, and the merits which I Offer for those which I ought to have, or his merits I offer for those which I ought to have, but do not have. And if he says that he is angry with you, say, Lord, I set the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between your wrath and me. And when you have completed this, say again, Lord, I set the death of our Lord Jesus Christ between you and me. And I just love that, especially that line, you know, the things that I deserve... I set the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as a covering for what I deserve and the merits that I ought to have but I don't have because I have nothing, I offer him and his merits in my place. And that's just a beautiful articulation of the reality that it's only through the work of Christ, his person, his life, his death, that covers us, that we are forgiven and that righteousness is imputed to us And this is written by somebody in the 11th century. And then just, I have two quotes from Bernard. Bernard of Clairvaux uh, established a monastery in the 12th century in Clairvaux in 1115. And he's credited with writing some hymns that you would be familiar with, O Sacred Head Now Wounded, and Jesus, The Very Thought of Thee. Listen to what he says about the sinner's righteousness He says, What can all our righteousness be before God? Shall it not, according to the prophet, be viewed as a filthy rag? And if it be strictly judged, shall not all our righteousness turn out to be mere unrighteousness and deficiency? What then shall it be concerning sins when not even our righteousness itself can answer for itself? Wherefore, vehemently exclaiming with the prophet, Enter not into judgment with your servant, O Lord, let us all with humility flee to mercy which alone can save us. So just an utter recognition that we come with nothing. And again, I'm using these quotes in particular because the Roman Catholic system that develops really in the 13th century and beyond, uh, because the sacramental system is officially dogmatized in the 13th century, that system is a system in which the sinner brings some good works to God. And here we have earlier medieval scholars, this from the 12th century, saying, no, 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 the sinner brings nothing. All we have is to clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. Which brings us to the final quote here from Bernard of Clairvaux. Uh, Bernard gives us a clear indication of what we call the imputed righteousness of Christ. And again, from somebody 500 years before Martin Luther. In fact, Luther and Calvin derived some of their language in articulating that doctrine from Bernard of Clairvaux. and I just think it's so cool to see witnesses to these truths at this time in church history, a time that most evangelicals just assume was totally Roman Catholic or assume uh, that uh, the gospel had been lost. Now, Bernard actually wrote this quote in a commentary on Song of Solomon. So his hermeneutic wasn't great because he turned Song of Solomon into a... um, Essentially, a a song about Jesus and the church. So he had an allegorical hermeneutic when it came to Song of Solomon. But when we read his commentary or his sermons on the Song of Solomon, what we see is his insight into the church and into the people of God. And listen to what he says. This is just one of many quotes that we could provide. Speaking to God, he says, As for your justice, So great is the fragrance it diffuses that you are called not only just, but even justice itself, the justice that makes men righteous. That's justification. Your power to make men righteous is measured by your generosity and forgiving. So he makes us righteous and he forgives our sin. Therefore, let the man who through sorrow for sin hungers and thirsts for righteousness trust in the one who changes the sinner into a righteous man. And notice this and judged righteous in terms of faith alone, that sinner will have peace with God. That sounds like something out of the Reformation, but it's 500 years before the Reformation, which again is just really encouraging. Okay, so in the centuries that follow, uh, we see the rise of the pre-reformers, And those are the men that we're going to talk about next time. Again, just to wrap all of this up, I know this was kind of a massive amount of data in a short period of time. thousand years is like an hour. Um, But some really important developments. The elevation and corruption of the papacy. Why do the reformers have to contend with this? the dissolution of Western Europe into these tribal groups out of which emerged the nations of Europe, the split between West and East, such that Eastern Orthodoxy is now distinct from Roman Catholicism, the rise of the university system, the conflict with Islam, the Crusades, and yet in spite of all of it, still a witness to the gospel that sinners are unworthy and that they are saved only on account of what Christ has done which they embrace through faith as a gift of God's grace. And that'll set us up next time to talk about guys like John Wycliffe and Jan Hus and others. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, I know we covered a lot of ground this morning, but it reminds us again that you are the Lord of history. And as the Lord of history, we've seen your hand of faithfulness so clearly demonstrated, both throughout biblical history and in church history, It gives us, again, reason to trust that your promises are true and that what you say you will do and that you are accomplishing all things according to your purposes. And so, Lord, even in a day when we see the world around us in turmoil, we ask that we would be faithful to trust in you. We cannot change the circumstances in which we find ourselves but we can respond to them in a way that honors you and brings you the glory that you deserve. To trust you and to bring our anxious thoughts to you in prayer so that we turn our worry into worship is the only right response, and it does honor you as the sovereign king that you are. And so we pray that that would be our heart this morning, and we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.